right. We're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8 tonight. Deaf Church, uh, I don't know where we were in this when you were here last, but we're only eight verses in, so we haven't made a whole lot of progress since you were here. Matthew chapter 5 says this, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Uh, my only request tonight, for, okay, my first request is that you turn around and see Scott Stoll's walking in in a suit at Community Church on Sunday night. Is this a first in like 18 years? He just did a wedding uh, and walked in. So my second request is if you're streaming the Cowboys game from your seat, that you just not, no outbursts, um, that give away to me what's happening so that I can watch it recorded when I get home. Uh, this passage, this verse, I should say, in Matthew chapter 5 uh, is one that sort of um, highlights, draws out for me one of my struggles with preaching. This is something I feel called to do. It's something I enjoy doing most of the time. And uh, it's also a challenge. It's also something that I never take lightly or never want to take lightly. And the, the couple of moments I could point to in my past when I feel like I kind of took this task lightly are moments of real regret for me because I'm standing up with what we believe are the scriptures, the word from God, to say, here's what I think is happening in the scriptures. And um, sometimes when I come upon a passage, in general I wonder this, but certainly um, in certain moments I wonder it more than others. I wonder, are we supposed to just let the scriptures speak for themselves? And I think about uh, if, if you wrote a letter, well, let me make it more personal. So at the beginning of my relationship with Amy, we didn't live, we, lived, we both lived in the Metroplex, um, but we didn't live in the same town. Uh, and so there was a lot of writing back and forth. And somewhere she has a folder uh, of a bunch of those emails printed out. And occasionally when we're moving or packing or I'm looking for some really important document, I come across that folder and I think, our kids are going to read that someday because we're going to die and forget it's there. And they're going to be left to go through all our stuff. And I don't remember what kinds of things are there. Um, and I try to imagine when I do this work, what it would be like to have my words that I wrote in a letter to Amy or to anyone else, to have all over the world today, thousands of people are standing up with your letter talking about what they think you meant, <laughs> right? And that letter was sort of just meant to speak for itself. Um, and that's the task. And I think this is a little bit different. I think it's a charge we've been given. I think we've been given the scriptures in part to do that, to open them together and to think and talk and imagine and listen to what the Lord has to say. And I do think we should do more of letting them speak for themselves, for the record, but I also think, and certainly think biblically, there's a purpose for teaching and preaching and discussion and asking questions of the scriptures and trying to understand them better. And I think one of those purposes is if our kids read those letters that Amy and I wrote back and forth to their kids someday, I'm confident there are going to be some things in there that they're going to want to go, hang on a second, let me tell you something about my dad uh, so you can understand why this isn't crazy, right? 
And we don't live in the context in which these words were written and spoken. And so that's one of the purposes, I think, is for us to, to sort of try to understand better what's happening in that space and time when they're spoken. Um, but this is one of those, this verse, because it's a passage where Jesus promises that a certain group of people will see God, which is no small offer that he makes to those people. And I'm going to come back around to this idea of seeing God before I finish tonight. Uh, but, but before we dive, dive into the first half, this, this blessed are the pure in heart statement, I want to be sure we grasp the weight of this and understand why it's important to understand what he means when he says the pure in heart are blessed. Because he says they're the ones who will see God. He's telling people that purity of heart will enable people to actually see God. And seeing God has always been the ultimate goal of every part of the life of God's people when, God, when we take being God's people seriously. We read this passage from Psalm 27 just a few minutes ago, and it says a few things about that. In verse 4, it says, One thing I asked of the Lord, that, I, that will I seek after, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And then further down in verses 8 and 9, he says, Come, my heart says, seek his face. Your face, Lord, do I seek. Do not hide your face from me. He wants to see the Lord in his fullness. Verse 13, it says, I believe that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The psalmist, his highest aspiration, the one thing he asks of the Lord is to be present with the Lord and to look on the Lord and the goodness of the Lord. And he concludes by saying, I believe in the land of the living, as a living being, I believe that I will see the Lord, see the Lord's goodness. Our vision, I think, is often clouded by so many different things that maybe the weight of this promise of seeing God doesn't move us the way that it should. It may seem exaggerated or out of reach or really intangible because we not having been people who walked with Jesus or who lived in a time where these, we have these brief moments in the Old Testament where there's some sense that maybe people saw something that we, we don't get to see. In fact, um, we have those words in the New Testament that Jesus speaks. Blessed are those of you, when he's speaking, who have seen me and believed, and blessed even more are those who won't see but will still believe, and that's us. We haven't seen the Lord. And so I think this feels a little too abstract to us sometimes. But this is Jesus. And Jesus said he is one with the Father. And that he later says, and we'll look at this in just a minute, but he later says that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is that person, that God, saying the pure in heart will see the one who made them. They will see the one who holds all meaning and purpose for their lives. They won't just think about him or worship him as an invisible being. They will see God. But, like I said, we'll come back around to the seeing God part. But he doesn't just say, even though he does tell us later that I'm one with the Father, and when you look at me, you look at the Father, there's a different sense of what he's talking about here when he talks about seeing God. And he doesn't just say, Everyone will see God now that I'm here. He says, it's the pure in heart who will see God. They're the ones who are blessed in this particular way. So what does it mean to be pure in heart? 
what I want to do first of all in talking about what it means to be pure in heart is eliminate a meaning um, of, of what Jesus is saying here that I think we're all tempted to carry away from language like this. When you have language, uh, th- th- this is true. I've had a couple of good interchanges and conversations with people since we started this process through the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, these blessed are statements that are then uh, have a second half which say, for this will happen to you if you're one of these people. Uh, if you do some reading on the Beatitudes, you're going to get a lot of different perspectives on what Jesus means when he says blessed. We talked about this when we started into this, but some people will say he means these are the people who are on God's side, the merciful, the pure in heart, the poor in spirit. They're the ones who are on God's side. There's, there's a lot of different interpretations uh, of what this means. What happens to us when it gets translated, remember none of this was spoken in English originally, but when it gets translated into our language, in our time, in the, in the sort of very, we have a very cause and effect way of thinking that just isn't the way everyone thinks in the world even today and certainly throughout history. And so we read this and we begin to conclude, oh, what Jesus means is if I can keep myself pure enough, I'll get to see God. We think cause and effect. We think I can earn the reward, I can earn the blessing by behaving properly. And in this case, behaving properly would mean keeping my heart pure. Um, so what I want to do is, is explain just a minute why I'm confident that's not what he means. He's not talking about you earning the ability to see God. And then I'll work, work our way back into some things that I think are very clear and true about Jesus and his message that will give us some sense of, of what he does mean. So I don't, as I said, think it means that you earn your way to seeing God by being pure enough. Uh, And and I'm going to give you three little ways that I think that we can make that conclusion from the full counsel of Scripture. If you go back into the Old Testament, even under the law, we have this one moment in the Old Testament when Moses asks to see God, and God says, you'll die if you look at me um, as you are. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll pass by, I'll put my hand over your face, uh, and then I'll let you kind of peek between my fingers and see my back side as I pass. We have this phrase that's my, one of my favorite phrases in all of Christianity, backside glory, that comes out of this passage. Spend a, little, spend a few seconds with that phrase. Uh, but that, we have this idea that Moses was allowed to get this glimpse of God from behind. But even in that moment, it wasn't something that he allowed Moses to do because Moses was perfect in purity. It was a grace. It was a gift that he gave Moses because Moses asked. Um, So even in the Old Testament, when everything's under the law, I don't think you make a case for uh, this idea that you get to see God if you keep yourself pure enough. And certainly not in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 4, Paul says... Referring back to the Old Testament again, he says this, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. People are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working for it. 
And this is what David said in the Psalms. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. So we have in Romans chapter 4, two, two, I think, clear conclusions that we can draw. Number one, we're not pure by default. This is a base assumption of what Paul says here, and I think of what we get from Jesus as well. We are not naturally pure in heart in the way that Jesus talks about. There's a whole lot of sermons that can be preached on our natural state, but I think it's sufficient to just say when we're trying to understand what Jesus means, that the pure in heart are blessed and will see God, he's not talking about people in their natural state, just us as we naturally are. And second, from Romans 4, we get this idea that we're made pure by God's forgiveness, not by our own nature, like I said, and not by our own effort. It's not something we can do. And then Jesus gives us this same idea in John chapter 14 when he says to the people who have asked him, his followers who have asked him a question, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. So Jesus gives us this same idea pretty clearly. You don't see God in your natural state. You don't see God without me. You don't come to him, and you certainly don't see him as he is on your own. It happens. It goes through me. There's something that's going to happen that Jesus is going to cause that enables us to see God. No one gets there on their own. It's always through me. That's, it, this is a, an all-encompassing statement Jesus makes. And if we connect this statement here back, the second statement here, when he says, if you know me, you know my Father also, we can t- connect this back to Matthew 5.8. We have a clue already about how the pure become pure in heart. The ones who know Jesus will know the Father. They're, they're the ones who will be able to see the Father. So that's what we have, uh, I think, as, as a way of entering into this with the assumption, with the belief that he doesn't mean if you make yourself pure enough, you're going to get to see God. So I think part of our understanding of, of what it means to actually be pure in heart uh, is found in the words of Jesus leading up to this phrase. So we read through the first seven verses before we read verse 8 of Matthew chapter 5, and this is who Jesus has blessed. These are the people that Jesus has said, Uh, in whatever way you interpret that word blessed, are blessed. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and the merciful. Prior to saying the pure in heart are blessed, he's given us these five characteristics or groups of people. These are the ones who are blessed. And I think we have a clue in that leading up to blessed are the pure in heart, of what it means or how we enter into being pure of heart. Purity of heart starts with these acknowledgments. It starts with me acknowledging that I'm poor in spirit. It starts with me mourning, being able to mourn things around me, but also my own brokenness, the ways that I hurt other people and even hurt myself. The meek, Jesus says, are blessed. Purity of heart begins with a meekness, with a coming into the world and coming before God with meekness, with a hunger and thirsting for a righteousness that I 
don't have and I need from outside of me. And from a recognition, we looked last week at blessed are the merciful through the eyes of the Good Samaritan, which really compels you not to ask, would I help this guy who's laying on the side of the road? In the way that Jesus phrases the story of the Good Samaritan, it compels you to ask, to, to look through the lens, through the eyes of the one lying dead, half dead on the side of the road. The man who prompts Jesus to tell that story, asks, who's my neighbor? And as he does throughout that story, Jesus answers that question with another question. After telling the story, he says, I don't know. You're laying dead on the, on the road. Who was a neighbor to you? He doesn't ask, are you a neighbor as you walk by? He asks, who's a neighbor to you when you're in that kind of need? That's what mercy looks like. And so we have a lead up to this phrase, um, with this idea that being pure in spirit begins with this acute awareness of our need and this openness to the gift of God's grace filling our need. So I think that's the start of understanding what does it mean to be pure in heart. Well, well to get there, for it to even be possible, I have to understand poverty of spirit and mourning and meekness and hungry and thirsting for righteousness and mercy. My need of those things is the beginning of my heart being made pure. Uh, so before we come back to, to seeing God, let me offer two more thoughts on this idea about being pure in heart. Um, Jesus focuses here on the pure in heart, not the pure in performance or behavior, not the pure in doctrine even. He focuses on the heart. And when we hear Jesus, when we hear anybody talk about the heart, uh, for better or worse, whether you're drawn to this kind of an understanding of the world or these kinds of feelings or understandings, or you're sort of repelled by them, um, we tend to hear language about the heart and think emotion that this is primarily what Jesus is talking about. Blessed are those who are pure in some sort of touchy-feely way when he talks about the heart. We may even think, um, when we think heart, we may think, we may sort of hear Jesus say, blessed are those who mean well, right? Pure in heart, I think for some of us, we think that's, when we say Jesus looks at the heart, that's pretty much what we, we mean. We, we mean he's looking to see if you mean well, and that's it. Um, but his attention to the heart, I, I think all of those things are too small. I think his attention to the heart is not a smaller focus than any of those options. It's larger. First of all, what we know biblically and even from Jesus, the heart is the seat of many of our troubles. This idea is certainly present in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 17, we're told the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. This is Old Covenant. This is good news that we don't live under the, the Old Covenant. We live in the New Covenant. But what we have here, I think, is still true. I don't think the nature of humanity changes when the covenants change outside of Jesus. That's what changes our nature. But outside of Jesus, this is still true. And this is what the Lord says, I know your heart better than you know your own heart. And so when I say blessed are the pure in heart, 
I'm talking about something in you that's potentially dangerous. And Jesus speaks to this as well a little further into Matthew's gospel when he says, but the words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. And this is a big part of what the Beatitudes are about, acknowledging our true condition and need. It's not about understanding, I'm just so awful, and God looks at me, and he just sees awfulness. It is about understanding I'm human, and I'm broken, and I need God. I have a deep, desperate need, and it delights him to come and fill that need. Okay, that's the big picture. But it is, for sure, an opportunity for us to acknowledge in all of these blessings that Jesus hands out. He's blessing people not who are, who are convinced they don't need, but who understand very clearly that they do need. They have that sense about themselves and about life. And second, first of all, this was the first idea that our hearts are sort of the root of a lot of our problems. And second is this idea, um, this sense of the heart that clarifies that Jesus is after something more than our emotions and our good intentions. When Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he's after all of us from the very center of who we are working its way out. Consistently in scripture, uh, this is how the heart is talked about. This is what the understanding of the heart is. It's the source of who we are. Yes, it is the sort of center point of our affections and our emotions. But when the scriptures talk about the heart, it's also talking about our thoughts, what we think about. It's talking about our will. Um, the purity that Jesus is talking about is a purity of our core being. It is what we really want. What, what is it in us that we really want? Um, He's asking or he's speaking to that very center of who we are, what we want as a person, and is, is what we want actually guiding and shaping who we are. So when he talks about our heart being pure, I think, I think uh, in a simple way he means this. We're no longer guided either by seeking out our own good. I no longer have a, a selfish heart. If I'm going to have a pure heart, it's not a selfish heart. That's not what sort of guides my living, that I'm primarily seeking to take care of me and what's good for me. I also think he means, uh, when he refers to a purity of heart, um, that I'm not always trying to determine whether and how I can believe or do the right things. I don't think that's what he's after. I don't think he's saying, blessed are the people who aren't selfish and who are always able to believe the right things and always able to do the right things. I don't think that's what he's after. I think instead he's suggesting that our hearts are transformed and we are transformed into beings who are guided by a recognition of our need, by a tenderness to the Lord shaping us. Whether or not he or his ways always feel good to us or make sense to us or make us look good, that's, that's a purity of heart. I'm not guided by selfish ambition. I'm not guided by how good I am or how, how much I can believe perfectly all the time or perform perfectly all the time. A pure heart is a heart that's tender, 
that's open, that is eager for the Lord, believing that the Lord is good, that He'll take care of me and that He knows best who I'm supposed to be. It means we're wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly focused mentally, emotionally, in our will and desire on God and His activity to us. When I say holy, I don't mean perfectly or every second of the day. There's plenty of acknowledgement in the Scripture that we will not be perfect in this, in our life, in our physical lifetime. But that I'm not holding on purpose parts of me back in my, in my heart, in my decision. Am I going to give myself or not give myself to the Lord, believing that it's okay to give myself, that He will take care of me, and that He will shape me well? This focus, I think, but what he means by pure in, in this space is captured in Psalm 86, verse 11, which says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. And then it says this, Give me an undivided heart to revere your name. An undivided heart. I think that's the focus, that's the idea of purity of heart, is that our heart is not divided. And we're all well acquainted with the difficulty of this. Paul, and this is why I say, I don't think um, when we talk about purity, we're not talking about finished perfection because Paul himself acknowledges this struggle to have an undivided heart in Romans 7. He says, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Deep down, I love the scriptures. I, I, I believe that this is the best, Right? But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the struggle. We all know this struggle. What we want somewhere deep down in us, it's hard to live consistently and to have an undivided heart in that way. But this who is Jesus' blessing. He's blessing those with an undivided heart. And the only path there is not perfect performance, but it is accepting our need and leaning into God to meet that need. If you read that uh, verse in Psalm 86 in the King James Version, that last line reads like this, Unite my heart to fear thy name. Bring these scattered sort of mixed motives part of my hearts together and bring it together for a singular purpose. The King James says to fear thy name. New Revised Standard Version says to revere your name. The point is to see God for who he is. Unite my heart to see God as God and believe that he's good. It's a prayer I think, this psalm, and I think uh, our response to Jesus saying the pure in heart are blessed, it's a sort of prayer that our heart be united toward what Jesus says is the greatest commandment. When he's asked what the, what the greatest commandment is, it's this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. The pure in heart are asking God to unite our hearts toward our created purpose, to acknowledge that we were made by God to live 
as he created us to live and to look to him to make that happen, to believe that he has to do that in us. And as we've already heard from both Paul and Jesus, that only happens through Jesus, that uniting, that living in one direction, that entering into the presence of God. It only happens through Jesus. Everything Jesus says, and this is important to remember because there is not just a temptation, but there's a lot of active teaching uh, that we can separate or we even should separate. Over here, we have this old story of Jesus and the cross. And over here, we have all of these things that Jesus taught about how to live in the world. And there's, there's something irreconcilable about the two. So let's just focus on the things Jesus said and the way that, that he said to live. And that's just, you don't want your words in the future being taken out of the context of your life. And we shouldn't do that to Jesus either. So when he speaks here, we know that he has a clarity of purpose. He knows what's coming for him in his life. He knows how he's going to speak about what's coming in his life. He knows the purpose of everything that's going to happen in his life. So when he starts saying things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, all the way down to blessed are the pure in heart, it's in the context of the bigger story of what's going to happen in his life. Everything he says is in the context of that story, including the way that he will make with his life, with his death, and his resurrection for us. So even though that part of the story hasn't unfolded yet, when he speaks these, word, these words, these words have meaning in that larger context. So when he says, blessed are the pure in heart, I think he means something like, those who know that they are naturally divided in their hearts, those who know that, that just by nature... I don't exist undivided in my heart. Those who acknowledge their need and those who fully give themselves to the Father through me is ultimately his message to have those needs met and to have their hearts united toward God. They are the ones who realize real life is found in God and his ways. And their hearts are united and they see God instead of all the other little gods that they set their vision on before. They're blessed. They really see God for who He is. Blessed are those who love the Lord with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their mind, whose emotions and affections and thoughts and wills are oriented toward God and His ways. They will see God. And again, this idea of seeing God is where I want us to end tonight. Um, it's a big idea that I'm mostly inclined to just let speak for itself, but I want to say um, two things. I, I want to say that I think it is both immediate and long-term in its meaning. When Jesus says, these people who are pure in heart will see God, I think there's an immediate meaning to that. And there is a long-term sort of big picture meaning to that. In the immediate, I think purity of heart leads us to shed the things that cloud our vision. If, if the heart is truly the whole of us, if it's not just blessed are those who are pure in their emotions, but it's something bigger and something deeper than that, then purity in the whole of who we are means we, we let go of, we take off of all of these things that otherwise cloud our vision, that cause us to look at other things or feel scattered or distracted um, and incapable of focusing. Even in that... 
um, even in that immediate seeing, because I, 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 I think when that happens, when we shed those things, we get greater clarity in our capacity to see God. I want to acknowledge that even in, in that short term, what we see is incomplete. Paul describes it as seeing dimly, as sort of seeing in a mirror or through a, a cloudy glass. But we do see there is an immediate seeing of God that happens here. And the pure in heart are purposefully pushing out of their sight, which means, I think, pushing out of our time, out of our spending, out of our attention, whatever pulls, pulls our affections and our thoughts and our will in some direction other than God and His ways. That's what the pure in heart are doing to be able to see God in the immediate. I think when we do that, we then have the ability to set our eyes on Jesus, who's described as the author and perfecter of our faith. That's what we see when we really look at him. This is not what I want to be clear about, a simple promise, because I think, I think this is a space where uh, um, a specific understanding of purity in the church has um, let some of us off the hook is the way we would think of it and think, oh, well, I am pure in heart. I'm not impure in heart like Jesus is talking about. But when I say let us off the hook, I mean let us out of a blessing <laughs> because these are the people who see God, the pure in heart, and if we're missing what that means, then that's what we're missing. So what I want to say is that this is not a simple promise that the really moral people will see God. It's not what this means. That's both good news and bad news, okay? Um, it's bad news because that is partly to say you're not unchallenged here. You're not automatically considered pure in heart here and home free if you avoid lying and cursing and immorality and drinking too much, which is what too much of Christianity has, has sort of lumped into this idea of purity. If you're moral enough, you'll see God. That is not what Jesus means when he says the pure in heart. This is Jesus saying, if you want to see God, you have to quit spending your life primarily looking at everything else. That's an impure heart. That's the core of who I am being spent looking at everything else except God. This is incredibly convicting to me. <laughs> um, and it's sad because this is why so many of us, I, I think, this is part of why so many of us feel distant from God and feel like I just can't really see or connect because our vision is constantly set on everything else. And Jesus is saying, blessed are those who purify what they're looking at. They'll, see, they'll actually see God. So seeing, that, that kind of seeing happens now. And I think we should fully give ourselves to that endeavor to let go of all that we cling to and fear so that we can be united in our inner being, uh, united in our desire to see only God as our security and as the purpose of our lives. But like I said, we're, we're also in the here and now seeing a reflection. We're not seeing everything. It's a dim, what we see is a dim, but it's a very real foresight of the ultimate, which is to say we are citizens of a kingdom that is here now, but it's only here in part. And that kingdom is going to come fully. And when it comes in its fullness, the king himself will come and we will see him. I believe that that's true. And I believe that Jesus is speaking those words here. 
And this is the purpose and the end of our life, to be unclouded in our vision, not to improve our circumstances as much as possible. That is not the purpose of our life, and that is not how we become pure in heart, by making everything as neat and clean and comfortable uh, as possible for us. The end and purpose of our life is to live, no matter what our circumstances are, with a purity, with a oneness of heart, so that our vision of the Lord is clear, so that we see Him as clearly as possible now with our whole being set on the coming ultimate redemption when our faith, we're told, will be truly made sight and we'll see Him fully as He is. From a place of absolute credibility that some of us can maybe relate to, Job offered this testimony. He said, For I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see on my side, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Is this who we are? Even as we struggle and suffer and fear and want other things than what we have or than what life deals us, as we try to live as people of God in a world that does not care to see God unless God meets them on their terms? Are we people who are willing to join Job in a united heart and vision and trust God as all in all? Because if we are, there's great hope. He will indeed be the life that is truly life. And we'll see him in that way. Let's pray. Father, Would you, we want to see you. And if we don't want to see you, um, would you do what needs to happen to change that? Give us hope that it's possible, that it means something, that it's not just empty religious talk. Give us a hunger, no matter what we've been through, no matter what we believe, no matter where we're coming from tonight, give us a hunger for the more, for hope. And a faith that the more and the hope come from really seeing you, from beholding that you're real and you're there and you're with us and you're on our side, as Job says. Give us faith that we can in our flesh, in the land of the living, see God. The band is going to lead us in a song that most of you probably know. It's called I Shall Not Want. And I wanted us to sing this song together because um, I think, I, I really believe that this purity of heart, this capacity to see God with a united and not an, a divided heart requires a letting go for us. It requires a willingness to let our hearts and our vision be united and focused. And there are so very many things that inhibit that, that demand our attention and our sight. And so we're going to sing this in just a minute. I want to give you just a minute. We don't do this a lot. I grew up in churches that did this kind of thing a lot, but we don't do it a lot around here. I wanted to give you just a minute quiet 
to maybe meditate on what are those things that are pulling at my vision, that are clouding my capacity to be united and even looking for God, much less seeing Him. And then as we sing, I want us to together lay some of those things down. You can't do it all probably in, in one sitting. But I believe that God is, is waiting. I think He wants to be seen. Offering himself freely to us if that's what we want. So take a moment uh, and think and pray about those things that you also want, that you may need to want less or not want at all, and set aside, or maybe things you don't want at all, but that have your attention. Set those aside, and then together, let's, in singing this song, lay those things down and focus our vision on the Lord.